So I mentioned that we had started um, just promoting the festivals a little bit for people uh, who are not familiar with the synagogue. So we did some Facebook, whatever it's called, Blake and Darren handle that, boosting. Um, wow. Wow. The comments, the comments in the thread are are beyond imagination in terms of their hatred for the things of God. It's, it's remarkable. I mean, we've hidden most of the, the really just incredibly, despicably, can't even repeat publicly comments that people make about God, about Yeshua in particular, and, you know, just making fun of everything. Um, but it's a sign of the times. Now, that's always been the case. But it's so easy now to publicly just say whatever with no consequences. With, with no consequences. So the thing is, you know, we're supposed to let that happen with, with no, like, we're, we, we shouldn't say anything about that because... That would be limiting someone's speech or their opportunity to say the way they to, to say they what they feel, um, which is utterly ridiculous. I'm supposed to let you do what you want without having an opinion, much less being able to voice it. But this 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 culture that we live in is upside down, and allows these things to take place. However. And I'm, I'm, I'm so much looking forward to the day when God does that every knee will bow thing. Because, man, that's going to be an interesting day for a lot of people. I pray still that there will always be mercy found. But for some of the things that people said on Facebook, it would be hard to imagine that they will ever stop being the people that they are toward God. But God can do anything. So here's the good part, though. People looked at it, <laughs> and our job is to educate. It's to draw people into a connection and understanding with God. So what I'm teaching you over the next, well, there's three more of these, really should be done over six more of these. That's my way of saying there's a lot of material that needs to be covered in these. So I'm going to hit you hard with all of this information. And today really are some of my favorite things to talk about. Last week was theology with a bit of history. Today is history with a bit of theology. Now, I am in no way intending, I say this almost all the time, which maybe because I have to say it so much, I am, but I'm not. I don't mean to belittle, delegitimize Christianity, Christians, the church as a whole, the founders of the church, etc. But with that said, in the in the in our Jewish Jesus series, and even a little bit in last week's message, we saw that there was a divorce that took place between what was supposed to be and what is. And so here, too, the festivals were Jewish. We already determined that they are God's festivals, though, that the Jewish people have carried along. But this divorce that I'm talking about is historically traceable. And that always makes for a good argument when history lays the blueprint for you. So that it's not my opinion, it's fact. 
Now, these things are motivated by, by two main things. One is this idea of what is known as supersessionism. That's the nice theological term for it. The traditional Christian belief that Christianity is the fulfillment of biblical Judaism, therefore that the Jews who deny that Jesus is the Messiah fall short of their calling as God's chosen people and therefore have been replaced written out of the Bible, replacement theology. The church has become Israel. That's what supersessionism is. That's what replacement theology is. And that needs to be understood in some of the things that we're talking about. So at best, that's the motivation. But in some part, the second motivation is motivated simply by anti-Judaism, which became anti-Semitism over time. And the need to replace all things Jewish because the church had been replaced. Now, also, though, there was a need in the time period that we're talking about for some political expediency for getting Judaism and Israel out of the way. And we'll talk about a guy named Constantine a little later. Everyone knows the name, but you can never really underestimate the influence of Constantine, the Roman church, and the exorcism of all things Jewish, which would be a word they would have liked to have used to describe it. The truth is, it was both of those things that happened. So, first off, take a breath. We address some of this. Gentiles and the festivals. Gentiles and the festivals. We know in Acts 15, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. And he goes on to quote the Old Testament, describing to this new community what is happening with the Gentiles. And he ends, this is James, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. What does that mean? It's the foundational text for why Gentiles are in the synagogue. It means you don't have to become Jews. That's not what we're asking you to do. But in the synagogue, you'll learn about a proper relationship with God. Acts 15. Now, so many, if not all Gentiles who became believers in Yeshua, while not being obligated to celebrate the festivals, would have celebrated the festivals. Why? Because they were disciples of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, living and functioning, not as Jews, but as God-fearers or Gentiles within a community which was celebrating Sabbath, Shabbat, Passover, Shavuot, Yom Kippur, all of these things. The Gentiles would have done it by default. And here is a simple but effective example. We talked about Peter and Paul and Mary and Jesus and all of them last week. But I want you to imagine anything other than the Gentiles coming in and celebrating the festivals could be compared to this. I join a prestigious country club who celebrates certain events and days of the year and has been doing that since the establishment of the club. And I come in 
and just say, you know what? I don't No, we're not doing that. We're going to do all these new things that I came up with because I'm a new member and I have great ideas. That's not how that would work. Would I suggest that they eliminate all of their things and should do, do different things? Of course not. And that's not what Yeshua recommended. That's not what the early community recommended. And that's not what the Gentiles did. Historically, we can verify that. It is a matter of fact. In a book by Lewis Feldman called Jews and Gentiles in the Ancient Worlds, the festivals were a great attraction to the Gentile world, as evidenced by the number of prohibitions that the early church then put on Gentiles not being allowed to celebrate them. Does that make sense to you? I shouldn't say that. It is fact. And we'll be back to that point about the prohibitions on the Gentiles, and I'll rapid-fire some texts at you. Gentile celebration, never an obligation as put forward by the early community. And here is our favorite text, the writing we looked at last week from Paul regarding the festivals in Colossians. It is commonly interpreted as being anti-Torah, anti-Jewish, anti-festivals. Right? Let's look at it. I don't know what version I put in there, so I'll have to read it from there. No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Shabbat, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. How does that translate? What does that look like? We've got words like mere uh, which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The obvious translation, another one from the New American Standard, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Messiah. All of these conditional words, guess where they came from? The translators. They're not there. They're not in the Greek. They're not in the Greek. The audience is this town, an ancient town, Colossae. Common interpretation. Don't let the Jews pass judgment on you and try to make you do those nasty Jewish festival things. You're new and Jesus did away with all that. Those are dead and gone. That is theological bias. What is going on here? The holy days are not reality, the NIV would suggest. They're shadows of things that were to come. The implication is that these are not for you, Gentiles. They're done away with. Have I beat that horse to death? You get it? You get it? Okay, good. What does it really say? Well, Recall our discussion of Paul the Jew, the Pharisee, the festival keeper. Is he now schizophrenically anti-festival? He's all of a sudden just saying, no, don't do any of those things. No. He is saying to former pagans, you ready for this? This is just, this is just miraculous. To former pagans, do not let your former pagan brethren judge you because you are keeping Shabbat, Rosh Chodesh, the festivals. 
It's the exact opposite of the common translation and teaching found within 2,000, 1,900 years of Christian theology. It's the opposite of that. The actual text does not contain words like mere or but or however. The actual text says more along the lines of, let no one pass judgment. Uh, these are, it says, they are the body of Messiah. They are the buddy, but buddy. We're the buddies. No, we're not. The, the, the body of Messiah. They are a shadow pointing to the future, the world and the kingdom that Yeshua is bringing. Yeshua is the shadow caster and is seen in all of these festivals. Don't go back, guys. Don't go back to the pagan things. And don't be judged for doing these things. Gentiles were celebrating the fast festivals. So when it says, which are a mere shadow of what is to come, the word mere not to be found. But the substance belongs to Christ. It says, again to reiterate, they are the body of Messiah. Yeshua is integrated into the festivals. And Paul was trying to teach that to Gentiles. Luke goes on in another place. He says he's using, he's using festival metaphor, festival timing to communicate with his audience about certain things. Luke is sometimes supposed to be a Gentile. Uh, you can listen to an FFOZ podcast on Luke as a Jew by Dr. Mark Kenzer. Very, very good evidence that Luke was Jewish, not Gentile. But nevertheless, he did speak and write about a lot of Gentile type things. He time references things. In 1 Corinthians, uh, no, 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 that's, that's something else. Sorry, I'm off. In in Paul sails from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, intends to arrive in Jerusalem by the Feast of Pentecost, when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over. Paul began to admonish them. The fast is Yom Kippur. So in all of this New Testament literature acts as a matter of fact, the point is obvious that in order for them to have any understanding of what those things meant as Gentiles, they needed to understand the biblical calendar and what was going on. Okay? Now, we need to skip ahead, skip ahead, third, fourth century. And here we'll get to the good stuff the parting of the ways, the divorce. Suffice it to say that for the first and second centuries, there was a sort of a little bit of synergy that was still happening within the believing community. Gentiles were celebrating Shabbat. They're celebrating Passover. But two main events came along. One is early by a guy named Marcion, or Martian, not from Mars. Marcion, the father of the Bible you didn't know about. Everyone know who Marcion is and what he did? Well, Marcion rewrote your Bible for you. And he thought it was a much better version that you should pay attention to. He removed the Old Testament. 
He took out a majority, a lot of New Testament texts, certainly anything that had any biblical references to the Old Testament, and he removed some things. He, he edited the epistles of, the, of Paul with the, with the references removed, anything with Jewish interpolations. His Christianity, Marcion's Christianity, was completely and totally opposed to all things Old Testament, all things Jewish. That was the mean old Jewish God. Now we have the good Jesus Christian God. And that was the Marcion text. Now, he failed in that endeavor, but it doesn't mean it didn't have consequences and results. He planted the seed of separation in such a major way between the Jewish scriptures and the apostolic scriptures. His version of the New Testament forced Christian leaders it forced them to compile this competing collection of New Testament writings. Eventually, that became the New Testament. But one thing came later. This is the second part. So Marcion sort of got things going with a very anti-Jewish perspective. And then, and there were other things. But the blossom of Marcion's seed was in Rome and her emperor, Constantine. Flavius, Valerius, Aurelius, Constantinus. Constantine the Great was born around 275. He worshipped the whole pantheon of Roman gods, as his predecessors had done, especially the Roman sun. But as anyone know the story of Marcion, I mean of Constantine, he's traveling to this battle and he sees a vision in the sky and it's Constantine's cross and, and God reveals to him, uh, in hoc signo vinces, in this sign you will conquer. That's the Constantine cross. It's also the badge of the Sigma Chi fraternity which I was a member of and took home to my Jewish father and said, hey, look, Dad, I joined a fraternity. The white cross is the badge. He's like, what have I done? <laughs> Fairly quickly after that, things got started. Here's where it gets down and dirty. 315 CE issued an edict against the Jew. Forget forbidding proselytizing. Jews, don't you talk about God. I don't want to hear about it. Two things. What does that show? Why did they have to, why did they have to pass laws to prevent Jews from proselytizing Gentiles? Which wasn't the Jewish, that wasn't like a big Jewish thing. But why did they need that law? Because Judaism was attractive to Gentiles and to pagans. And they didn't want that to happen. And it prompted this sort of, this, um, this, idea that we've got to remove all things Jewish. So a new path emerged. Justin Martyr. Everyone know Justin Martyr? Very influential. Very, very important political figure. Acts 15. What did Acts 15 tell us? It said, they don't need to do all this stuff. They're going to learn in the synagogue, right? Well, Justin Martyr said, uh-uh. Gehenna, no, we're not doing that. And you can, I mean, I don't want to read them all, but there's some really good stuff there. We would observe the fleshly circumcision and the Sabbath and short all the feasts if we did not know for what reason they were enjoined on you because of your transgressions, your sin and the hardness of your heart. That's why God gave you these holidays. 
We're not doing that. Justin Martyr. Constantine in 321, he had something nice to say. On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrate and people residing in the cities rest and let all workshops be closed. And he goes on to say that, you know, this is the Sunday day, the venerable day of the sun. That we will, you know, and in 336 in the Council of Laodicea, Christians must, must not Judaize by resting on the Shabbat. Okay, so what you're doing right now, anathema from Christ. It's the fourth commandment. God's very intentional about the Shabbat for his people. Anathema to Christ if a Gentile rests on the Shabbat. What's anathema mean? Cursed. Cut off. Yech. That's what anathema means. Easter. And we're not getting weird. We're not going to like get into like making people feel bad because they celebrate Easter and Christmas. We get it. I understand. I know what it is. However, listen. 325 Council of Nicaea, formalized in 381 after a dozen councils at the Constantinople. Regard to the festivals, particularly Passover, this watershed moment in the separation. The council, Constantine, First of all, it appeared an unworthy thing that in the celebration of the most holy feast, which is Easter, we should follow the practice of the Jews who have impiously defiled their hands with enormous sin and are therefore deservedly afflicted with blindness of the soul. On, let us then have nothing in common with the detestable Jewish crowd, for we have received from our Savior a different way. Really? What different way was that? And where did he say it? detestable Jewish crowd. We can't have anything to do with them. So we're going to separate and get away from any Passover. Easter is not even in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, if you want some more theological bias, you can read James uh, or Acts 12, I think. At King James, Acts 12, where the word Pascha or Pesach is translated as Easter. Now, would that be confusing to a reader? who would have no idea that Easter didn't exist when they were writing the book of Acts? Constantine continues, A course at once legitimate and honorable lies open to our most holy religion. Beloved brethren, let us with one consent adopt this course, withdraw ourselves from all participation in their baseness, for their boast is absurd indeed. It is not in our power without instruction from them to observe these things. 341, the Council of Antioch passed legislation prohibiting Christians from dining with Jews and Passover. Okay, it, There's so many examples, and I, I have to give you a few more, but we could, we could talk about Christmas and some of the things where Constantine, you know, he had a very large pagan following, and he needed to do some things that worked well for them. So he found this syncretism of holidays that happened along. And I'm not going to go into Christmas, but anyway. <clears throat> to broaden the appeal. Oh, I love this one. Hang on. This is from British historian James Fraser. 
Taken altogether, the coincidences of the Christian with the heathen festivals are too close and too numerous to be accidental. They mark the compromise which the church in the hour of its triumph was compelled to make with its vanquished yet still dangerous rivals, the empire's competing pagan religions. So, when I said it's political, obviously, that's Estevan from Nacho Libre. It is political, obviously, because they needed to manage power. And in order to do that, they had to make, what are they called? I can't think of the word. Where you bring people of diverse backgrounds together. So Rome creates holidays. And you know what? I would be just okay with that if it weren't for the other things. And for taking away all of the beauty for 2,000 years from people who really, really could enjoy the biblical festivals. Constantine was going to rule the world. And so that's how you do it. But, you know, you didn't have to do it this way. But it would be safe to assume that if Constantine was that influential, that they would, we would find others, right? We would find others. Passover was still holding on late, late into the second, third, fourth centuries. Cordodecimans, you know that term? These are people, widespread group of Gentiles from the Eastern churches, the Orthodox, who absolutely held that Easter must fall in line with the 14th of Nisan. So they were still observing it on Passover, which was at least a little bit of a still-connected compromise, right? Nobody liked that. Epiphanius, as late as 400, mentions them that, that they're still addicted to Jewish fables, which are the festivals of God, as one illustration. Ah, nah, I'm not going to do it. Let's let's look late fourth century to one of my one of my favorites, and it's almost it's almost too easy to go to John Chrysostom, but I'm going to because it's so relevant. Okay. John Chrysostom, 349 to 407. He was called the golden mouthed. He spoke with such power about the Christian faith and believers. He was from, he was in Antioch. I think he's a, I don't, I don't, uh, anyway, sorry. Too much in my head. But, but, but Pastor Chrysostom really, really didn't like you Gentiles have anything to do with these festivals. Really didn't. And so he wrote some homilies. He wrote some homilies about these things. And the Gentiles, as we've established, were attracted to Judaism for a variety of the reasons. Um, but this quote from, from Pastor John. 
I know that many people hold high regard for the Jew and consider their way of life worthy of respect at the present time. That's why I'm hurried to pull up this fatal notion by the roots. A place where a whore stands on display as a whorehouse. What is more, the synagogue is not only a whorehouse and a theater, it's also a den of thieves and a haunt of wild animals. No better disposed than pigs or goats. Seven of the eight homilies against Judaizers by Chrysostom were given just prior to the high holidays and one given just before Passover. Why do you think that was? Because he was trying to keep the Gentiles from observing the festivals of God, and he was very angry about it. Okay? There are so many different quotes from Chrysostom and others that we don't need to really spend a ton of time going into those, and we're not. But that's the... um, That's a brief flyby on the history of the divorce or separation or pulling apart or whatever word you want to use. You can look up countless, countless references to these types of things. Okay, but before we get to the good stuff, you always got to get through the bad stuff. And I told you it wouldn't be that fun, so I only made one Nacho Libre joke because I wanted to be very intentional about you not having any fun. That's the parting of the ways. So, We've talked now a little bit, Easter, Passover, pagans, and we could say, oh my, but we've established that the early community of Yeshua's followers, Jews and Gentiles, until at least the second century, were very closely connected to the Jewish calendar and the festivals. Now, a version of celebration on Sunday, remembering the resurrection of Yeshua, had certainly come to be observed, but it was not to the exclusion or negation of any of the other things, particularly Shabbat. And the Jews and Gentiles within the believing community had some unity. But with this emergence of Marcion early and Constantine's conversion later, this major shift or rift actually would be better stated, from which developed a separate calendar of celebration from the now state-sponsored Roman church and the Jewish synagogue. Now, that's not a reflection on anything Catholic or anything like that. I'm simply saying the history of that early community. And eventually, what that developed into was a major, major anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic separation. So, that wasn't fun, but it's imperative because it will help us answer the next set of questions which we're here to learn about. If the church saw fit to do away with the festivals, and I'm part of the church, why would I have anything to do with them? That's a pretty good question, which Colossians really wants you to, translate it that way, wants you to believe. What relevance? Well, we had the overview in week one, and next week we will begin to look at the central place that your Messiah holds within, I said he's the shadow caster on the festivals, right? The central place that Messiah holds within all of the festivals. We'll do that for spring and fall. The fulfilled and the awaiting fulfillment. And we will then see why it's so relevant and so necessary and why the full early church saw themselves as these participants in this cycle They were excited about being a part of them, and they witnessed the miracles 
of being in this new community and observing God's calendar. Now, you sort of already do. I get it. I'm preaching to the choir. But it's for you and them and hopefully for the building of the kingdom in heaven. Because, as I've told you before, despite what history has told us, these are all coming back around. And we'll be celebrating in the kingdom with Messiah these festivals. Okay? Amen. Shabbat Shalom.